0: As the gospel writer Matthew tells the story of Jesus, he talks about the region along the Sea of Galilee known as Naphtali and Zebulun, which is completely weird because nobody was referring to these regions by those names anymore. It had been at least 700 years since it was really prominent that that would be the names of the places. It would be like today if we were to call the state of Virginia, the colony of Virginia, as in the original 13 colonies, we just don't talk that way anymore. But as Matthew, as he's telling the story, he's highlighting the history of this region. The uh, region has a history and it's He wants to bring out the geographical, uh, everything that was going on there, and to make his point, and so that nobody misses the point, he quotes Isaiah the prophet. Now, what is the history? What's going on that he's trying to, to bring out? Well, now that truly is ancient history. There you'll have to go back 1,800 years. Oh, not before us, but before Matthew as he wrote this gospel. You have to go back to the time of Abraham and his son Isaac and Isaac's son Jacob, Jacob's 12 sons. For Naphtali and Zebulun were no, not regions or cities, but people. They were two of the original 12 sons that would eventually grow into the 12 tribes of Israel. It would be his descendants, or these two boys, descendants, that would stand at the entrance of the Holy Land, as Moses would talk to them and to all the people and would remind them that any anytime you get a new home there 's a homeowner 's association with a covenant and if you don 't follow the covenant there 's trouble, and the covenant was very simple to love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength to to hear his commands and to walk within those commands. For they had been a people who had received grace upon grace upon grace. God had delivered them out of slavery in Egypt. He had been with them in the desert wanderings, feeding them, watering and caring for them. And now he was gifting them this land, keeping his promise that he'd made to Abraham. They had to do but one thing, to remain in the grace given to them, to remain in the love showered upon them, to remain the treasured possession that they were to God by having no other gods, by worshiping Him and Him only, and keeping all of the commands. And how did they do? Well, the ancient writings also record their dismal failures, as we see here in Second Kings, they forsook all the commands of the Lord their God. They made for themselves two idols cast in the shape of calves and an Asherah pole. They bowed down to all the starry hosts and they worshipped Baal. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters in the fire. They practiced divination and sought omens and sold themselves to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, arousing his anger. They could not have gone any farther into the darkness. They could have not been any more evil than the people that were already there, that were cast out to make room for them. And so first in, first out, these northern tribes of Israel were the first to go into exile, for they were the first to really go into the darkness. And Naphtali and Zebulun, they were the first. And so as Isaiah as Isaiah mentions what's going to happen For God's judgment had indeed fallen upon them. The Israelites persisted in all their sins and did not turn away from them until the Lord removed them from His presence, as He had warned through all of His servants, the prophets. So the people of Israel were taken from their homeland into exile in Assyria, and they are still there. Long before the Babylonian captivity, the northern tribes were taken. Naphtali and Zebulun were taken. But before God lowered his hand of judgment, he also lifted his hand to the prophet and raised up a promise through Isaiah that you, you would be a place first, that God would return and bring about the light in this darkness, to bring about restoration and recovery, to bring about his kingdom once again to his people. And so... As we hear about what would happen, a light has dawned with Jesus. And this light in the very darkest place would shine so brightly that it would draw people. But you have to know something about this light that would dawn in Zebulun and Naphtali. This light was not like a nightlight in the middle of the night. You sometimes will need to get up. You need to go to down the hallway and use the restroom. It'd be good to know that there weren't any uh, Legos on the floor. It'd be good to know uh, if you had to go even beyond, even down the stairs to retrieve some soap or whatever, that the coffee table by the couch hadn't been moved and it's not going to get your shins. Light is very handy in showing what is there. So the path that you're going is revealed and you have some wisdom and safety but the light that isaiah predicted was coming was not a light to reveal a pathway to heaven a path that you were already going on no this light would be so dazzling so beautiful so wonderful that it would be like a moth as it heads toward a light it it leaves its path that it was going on anyway, and now it cannot go any other place but where the light is. It's mesmerized by the light. It's beauty, its, it's desire to be where that light is. This is how Matthew would describe the light that shone in Naphtali and Zebulun when Jesus arrived. The people would leave the path that they were on. Be they fishermen... With their nets behind, their father behind, those in the dark grip of pain and suffering and disease, those who had no spiritual wherewithal about them at all, no, no covenant keeping in their hearts, and yet when they saw Jesus, they left everything in the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, all of Syria, all the places around, and they just had to be with Jesus. but there's something that we have to keep in mind about history. While the light did come to those living in darkness, and while Jesus did give his gifts upon gifts, and the people were welcomed once again into the kingdom of God, you and I, why, we live in dark times too. Even as advanced and as modern as we are, the problem with history is that it is a circle that keeps on repeating. And when we look at how dark this land had become, we find that they really, two things about them that really brought in the darkness and that they had forsaken the Lord their God and worshiped other gods. And it demonstrated itself in the horrific practice of sacrificing their children to those gods. Now, you might think, well, how would that be possible? How, how could they do that? Well, as we find an answer for this, we have to keep in mind that those people living in that dark place were as at least as moral as you and I are. They were at least as intelligent as you and I are, and they were at least as religious as we are. So how in the world could they ever go down such a path? Well, they, go, they went down that path like you and I go down the path, and like every generation throughout history goes down that path, that there, there comes some compelling reason to do something evil. And the compelling reason usually has to do with our safety and our wealth. And that horrible things were happening, and how can we we keep ourselves from from being captured by the the weather, uh, tragedies, and war? Well, the other nations talked about there are gods in charge of these things, and if you just offer sacrifice to them, that perhaps you will be provided with a certain amount of safety. And so you can offer your wealth, but what's the most precious thing that you have? Is it not your children? Imagine the attention that you would receive if you gave the most important thing about you. You see how the logic makes sense? You see how you wouldn't sacrifice all of your children, but just some, in the hopes that what you have, you could keep. So today, you might think, well, but we're not doing that. And yet, we live in a very dark land that has the very same seduction to that darkness. That no, we would never sacrifice our children. And yet, going down that road of economy and pain, we have given ourselves permission to eliminate some of our children. And it's very justifiable in our human minds that how could we burden some people with this terrible thing that now that they're pregnant? How could we burden women who've gone through a horrible experience? And yes, we understand it. We feel their heart and their struggle. And so it just makes sense that it it is logical that we could eliminate some of our children to alleviate some of the financial and emotional hardship. But it's, it's not just our children. It, it all stems from our religion of what we believe about God and that who He is and what He's done for us. The darkness before, they bowed down before the starry hosts. They, they bowed down before the gods of the other people. Why would they do that when they had the true and living God who had done great and wonderful miracles for them? It can only happen... By a people standing in judgment of the faith, one generation looking at all the generations that have gone before and saying, "We've outgrown this. We know more now. We know better now." We live in a culture that is embarrassed. That. We believe that God created the heavens and the earth, that it didn't just evolve without purpose or, or design or without any, any uh, chance. It just happened. Since we believe that God created everything, it's just embarrassing to the rest of the culture that you would actually think that. That, is, that has been so disproven scientifically now that we know better. We, we live in a culture that is not only embarrassed by what we believe, but ashamed Ashamed that we would take a, a such a position that God created us male and female, that there is a design to our genders. We live in a culture that would deny the truth, all truth, even and especially the truth of the scriptures. And we live in a culture that is very much raising up the rights of minorities, but then Falling into tribalism. As long as you're in our tribe, you're good. As long as you think the way we think, then you're good. But if you don't, then you're the enemy. Our land is just as dark because history repeats itself. It repeats itself because what's inside of us is dark. What's inside of us is, I just want what I want, and I want to be right in my own mind and to justify myself. You can see how a nightlight would be far too inadequate to simply, you know, reveal your path a little better, to give you a little more wisdom. If Jesus is simply a light on your path, all he would be illuminating is your path to destruction that you were going on anyway. What you and I must have is a light so beautiful, so dazzling, so beyond any light here on this earth that it is almost mesmerizing. We cannot help ourselves but follow this light. And so to shine this light anew for us, look at Jesus. Look how he embraced the children. And he said, the kingdom of God belongs to them. God is so valued, so embraced, so held close to his heart that Jesus would say, whoever would lead one of these little ones of faith away from me, it would be better if you had a millstone tied around your neck and thrown into the sea. He says about our children, let them come unto me, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. Such a light only grows even more dazzling and beautiful when you see how he welcomes all the castoffs, the minorities, those whom society says you're not good enough, you're not wanted or needed. Has Jesus welcomed the outcasts, the prostitute, the sinner, the tax collector, everyone whom the society at that time says you are not enough and Jesus says to them and to all of his disciples, in my Father's house are many rooms, and I go there to prepare a place for you. You are welcome in the kingdom. You, how could his light shine on such a people who are obviously sinners? who have been following the way of their own culture, who have said, this is good, what is evil, who said, this is light, what is really dark. How could Jesus shine his light on, on people who were sinners and say, you are in my family? The only possible way is that he takes the darkness on himself. As we behold the brightest light of Jesus there on the cross, we see him sacrificing himself, the light going out for a time that we might live in that light forever. It is Jesus and Jesus alone who gives us a new path, a new life, a new mind, a new spirit, a new heart, a new everything so that we, we might live in this light forgiven and loved This light that shone in Zebulun and Naphtali, it truly is a one and done. You and I have been brought into this light through our holy baptism when God said to you by name, you are mine. But repentance is a daily practice, a daily prayer. As Jesus called out, repent and believe the kingdom of God is at hand. That's the daily life of those living in the land of darkness for you and me. Why? Why would it be our daily practice? Because you and I would just rather get along. You and I would rather take the easier path. You and I don't really want to buck society. We want to do what we want to do. that, That darkness still remains in us even though we are children of light. And so the daily call to confess as we hear in God's word things that really challenge us in the way that we were going on anyway, and says, no, I'm calling you out of that life. And when we are confronted with it and we see it, is a confession. Lord, I confess. And then there is a repentance. The Holy Spirit works a change. I was going this way, and now by the Spirit I'm going this way. And... And the Holy Spirit gives you the strength and the power and the words of Christ, making them true and your way of life. And then finally, the Spirit gives you the faith to believe that the kingdom of God, the good news of the kingdom, is true for you. That as sinful and dark as I am in my inner being, Christ Jesus, you have made me light in your forgiveness and love and the spirit that dwells within me. I believe the good news that I am yours. As we go out into our normal, everyday life, we take these three daily practices with us, our confession, our repentance, our faith that the good news has come to us, all as a work of the Spirit in our heart.